Welcome to the Deep Bible Studies Podcast, where we discover, explore, examine, and practice the Word of God. I am your host, Claudia Rivera Guevara, and today we will be going through John 4, 16-42, but the second part. We will be going more into theology and the practice. And so let's get started. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman was struggling to understand her spiritual need, and if she didn't understand that, how would she be able to grasp Jesus' offering for transformation and reconciliation? I mean, it's the same way with us. That is why Jesus very suddenly turns the conversation to her greatest need, salvation from her sin. And that is also why Pastor John MacArthur explains it this way. His intimate knowledge of her morally depraved life not only indicated his supernatural ability, but also focused on her spiritual condition. Christ didn't say this to shame her, but to reveal the fact that she is dead in her sin and in need, as all of us are. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. What Jesus is saying here is not only countercultural today, but it was true. And it is true today. And in the majority, truth is offensive, and we know this. But it is transformative because it reveals. Jesus explicitly reveals here not only the fact that she was fornicating and committing adultery, but also he was saying that the man she was living with is not her husband. Biblical marriage is not just two people living together. It is a public, honoring, official, recognized covenant. Furthermore, he states this because sin must be confronted. How would we know the world in our own depravity if we didn't know what was wrong? That is where repentance comes in, and without repentance, how are we truly to believe and grasp the gospel? The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Jesus' very intimate knowledge of her life made this apparent to her. Furthermore, verse 20 says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now it is here, where the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. He meant his death in here his resurrection, and his ascension. Jesus was referring to the sacrifice of bearing our sin and taking the punishment meant for us, the wrath of a holy God, for this woman, this adulterous and fornicating woman. Why did he do it? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. To answer the question, He did this out of pure, true, and holy love. Verse 24 says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. This is going to be a long part, you guys. Jesus establishes here what true worship is and the fact that it is necessary. But first, he establishes that God is spirit. God is not visible. He is not imaginary, for faith is not blind. But he is not visible. Colossians 1, 12-14 says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, 
in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Man cannot comprehend the invisible God apart from his revealing of himself, as he has done in the scriptures and the incarnate God the Son himself. Therefore, man's worship of the living God is meant to be in spirit and in truth. Man must not be concerned just with outwardly realities such as religious rituals, sacrifices, methods, trappings. Rather, man is to be focused on the eternal, the heart, heart posture, heart attitude, genuine repentance, genuine belief, genuine reverence. This can only be done through the belief and the repentance in the gospel, through what Christ has done, or there is no relationship with God. There is just separation. Secondly, man must worship in truth, meaning that worship is according to God's word. How can you worship a God you don't know? How can you worship a God apart from the revelation of himself? Not even in corporate music service can you worship apart from the word of God. How would you know how to please him? He has provided his word for us to know him. It is not just a rule book, you guys. I mean, yes, there is a law in there and the law does apply, but obviously the laws of the Torah have been fulfilled by Christ. And now pleasing him with our works is so much deeper than just outwardly knowledge and religious actions. Again, it's a heart posture. It's a delight just as David would say in the Psalms. And David was a man after God's own heart. Like, isn't that amazing? And we have the Holy Spirit in us. That's amazing. He has provided his word for us to know him. What a gracious provider is he. That is why we're doing this. That is why this whole entire podcast exists. Because the word of God is so important. And if it's here and if he's true, why do we treat it like it's nothing? Along with that, worship is meant to be centered on the word made flesh, which is Jesus. He, through his sacrifice in the cross, has paid the wages of our sin so that we might be cleansed and be made right with God. He himself is God so that we might know him for eternity and be reconciled to him. 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 6 says, This is good. Context of the passage. The church prayer for all the people is what he's talking about. And it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved, to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Let's move on. Verse 25 says, The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. So what does Messiah mean? Uh, this definition that I'm about to give you is from our John 1, 29 through 51 episode. It comes from the term to anoint in Hebrew, which is an action to appoint to a position or a function. So therefore, it means anointed one. The kings and high priests were anointed to their position, for example, but the prophecies of the Messiah actually also bear the translation of the coming one. So anointed one and the coming one. Jesus is the greater king, the greater priest, the greater prophet, 
appointed by the eternal father as God himself to do as Philippians 2, 6 through 11 says, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above all names, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus reveals himself to sinners. I mean, that's incredible when you really grasp it and understand the weight of that. Furthermore, Ligonier Ministries in their John 4 Bible study says, At the meeting, Jesus revealed truths about the woman and about himself. But while Jesus confronted her on her adultery, he continually brought the focus back to himself as the one who gives everlasting spiritual refreshment. Explaining that God seeks people even from the Samaritans who will worship him in spirit and in truth. This is the entire point of the story of the Samaritan woman. It's about who Jesus is. Verse 27 then says, Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Right here we see that the woman's eyes are opened. She understands not only her need, but her sin against a holy God. What would she love? Her sin or the Messiah? The impact he had on her was so life-changing she dropped her water jar. The very purpose why she was there in the first place. Symbolizing her leaving behind her earthly identity, manners, and sins. Come and see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? She was so quick and eager to tell everyone, revealing the very thing that she was trying to hide, her sins and her reputation. Yet because the Messiah was finally there and offering reconciliation to God and eternal life, she didn't care. Again, Ligonier Ministries puts it this way in their John 4 Bible study. Our Lord's meeting with the Samaritan woman shows that our deepest need is not for water to quench our, phys to quench our physical thirst, but for water to satisfy our spiritual thirst. Only Jesus can provide that living water, and those who receive it cannot help but tell others about him. They went out of the town and were coming to him. Her testimony of Jesus and her openness of repentance was so shocking to the people that they wanted to see Jesus immediately for themselves. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. I have food to eat that you do not know about. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Jesus was performing the will of the Father as always. But in this very passage, we see the salvation of the Samaritan woman and the Samaritans themselves, therefore meaning that this was the will of the Father. Jesus said in John 6:29. Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. No food or drink or water could ever sustain man. For Jesus himself said, What good would it do a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? 
This also reminds me of what Moses said to the Israelites and Jesus repeated in the wilderness when he was being tempted. Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. This can be found in Deuteronomy 8.3 or Luke 4. Furthermore, John MacArthur states, obedience and dependence upon God's will is summed up by Jesus' whole life. John 6, 38 through 40 says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of he who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That is so beautiful and it gives me chills to think about. I just think it's interesting because we're constantly talking to each other of, oh, what is the will of God? What is the will of God? And of course, God's will uh, is still being exercised today. But truly, it states it right here. I mean, the will of God, dependence and obedience upon the will of God is the gospel and preaching the gospel. Do you not say there are four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for what you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard it for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is the point of the story. It's about Jesus, God the Son. Let's finish off with 1 John 4, 13-16, which says, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe that the love that God has for us, God is love, and whoever loves abides in God and God abides in him. You can find more information on our website, www.deepbiblestudies.com, where you will also find the calendar to go along with the book that we will be studying. You can also find us on Instagram, at Deep Bible Studies, and Facebook, where you can know every single time we post a new podcast. Also, we have an email, contact at deepbiblestudies.com, where you can ask us any questions and we will be sure to get back to you. I hope you have a wonderful day and see you next time.